VoiceAmericaHealth.com. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Welcome to One Hour at a Time. And, of course, I'm John McAndrew, your guest host today, filling in for Mary Woods. Today's guest uh, is Charlene Princeton, and Charlene has written her very first book, which is a personal journey um, documenting her journey with her husband, uh, Sean. And in this book, she shares what her husband and family endured and how they found their own answers in the face of a medical system that's ill-equipped to handle mental illness. Now, Sean served in the uh, military in Bosnia, and for seven years he fought a battle with depression, painkillers, and alcohol. Finally, after many trips to doctors and facilities, including jails and hospitals, they discovered the root of their problems, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, this condition, war injuries, and narcotic pain remedies made their lives a living hell. And Charlene, the, the book is uh, really, really powerful. Her husband, her and her husband live up in Wisconsin. Charlene is a teacher. And uh, Charlene, we want to welcome you to the show today. Thank you very much, John. It's very nice to be here, and I appreciate this opportunity to be here and talk about it. Yeah, the, the book... Um, that you've written, Blind Devotion, is being released today by Hazelden Publishing, and we want uh, our listeners to be aware of that. And it, it says under Blind Devotion, survival on the front lines of PTSD and addiction. And um, I think my first question for you is, after we get into the details of this story, what what in particular inspired you? You've never written a book. You are a school teacher, so we assume you know how to read and write mm-hmm. <laughs> and teach others to do so. What inspired you to sit down and take on this project? Uh, there, there were many reasons. One of them, as you'll see when we talk about the details of the story, is it was just such an extraordinary story, and the events that happened just seemed surreal. And so many people, when they would talk with me afterwards, would say, my gosh, you could write a book about that. And I heard it enough times that I thought to myself, well, perhaps I could write a book uh, about that and be able to help other people not have to go through the process at least so long as we did without finding resources. So um, one of the big reasons was then to just to educate uh, veterans, military families about some of the symptoms of PTSD and depression. And, of course, that's becoming more open and you see it more in the media and it's much more talked about than it was back when we started our journey back in 2000 but um, still there are many people who just sometimes don't recognize the signs or think it's no big deal or they'll get over it and I certainly wanted them to see that if we don't get help for some of these things um, things can get much worse. Um, We also wanted to just raise awareness in the general public, um, just raise awareness about mental health issues, about addiction, about the struggles of military families in particular, uh, and just kind of hopefully reduce some of that stigma by coming out of the closet, so to speak, about some of these issues that sometimes are, you know, hush, hush, whisper, whisper in many families, but coming out in the open about that to give others the courage to do that because that's when you find the help. And so to build compassion and try to reduce that stigma and to say, you know, this was our experience, and this is, these are illnesses, and there's help for them, and we're not going to be ashamed of that. Right. Prior to all this, Charlene, what was your knowledge or experience with uh, 
you know, alcohol and addiction and substance abuse and mental health was what was your awareness level and your knowledge level prior to all this? Uh, I would say it was quite minimal or it was factual based. You know, as I was a resident assistant in college, I've been a camp counselor, and of course I'm a teacher, and so you do certainly get some training in those areas to recognize those signs in other people. Um, but it was, you know, quite um, academic, the information that I had. I think you'll note even uh, in the book I mentioned that I had really no experience with alcohol or addiction. There was just no alcohol in my family home at all. Um, so I had no experience with that or what it looked like. Uh, I think I mentioned that my only reference to addiction was at the time Brett Favre had just recently gone through his um, struggles with Vicodin, and so that was my only reference point that I had at that time for dealing with these issues. Mm-hmm. And we talk, uh, our show uh, talks a lot about dual diagnosis, and we'll get into that a little bit later. Um, uh, you know, hearing that word, dual diagnosis, there's definitely a stigma that surrounds that. I think many people in this field today are are trying to do what you're doing. And, I, and just right up front, I want to thank you for taking that head on. I want to thank your husband as well. And uh, there's a sweet little chapter in the book, and it's actually chapter two, um, when you describe meeting um, Sean. Can you tell us just a little bit about that? Um, yeah, I was I was a single teacher. I had been single for several years. Um, I was coming off a kind of a bad relationship in college, and so just was not connecting well in my relationships. But I was looking, and I had a um, a friend or a neighbor who ended up uh, introducing me to Sean. And at the time, I kind of had these stereotypes in my head about military men that they were kind of risk taker risk takers, and uh, I just didn't know if that was kind of the direction I wanted to go. But when I met him, there was just something so charming and so. Uh, appealing about him, his strength, uh, and yet also just his um, softness inside him. And so, um, you know, we started dating. He actually was still uh, in the Army for three months after I met him. He had come home on leave, and I met him very quickly uh, in the hallway. And then he called me a few weeks later. So the beginning of our relationship actually started over the phone for three months from him in New York and me in Wisconsin. And I note in the book that I think that that was very helpful because we got to know each other on a deeper level than perhaps we might have otherwise. Um, And then he came home uh, three months later for good. He was honorably discharged. um, And we had a fairly normal courtship, you know, all the sweet things that you hope for, the notes on your windshield and all these, you know, romantic things. It was a, a wonderful courtship. Um, but there were signs early on of trouble. It's just that I didn't recognize. In fact, I didn't even know that he had necessarily been in a combat area or what kind of experience he had had in the military. So that right. was part of the trouble as well, just that complete ignorance of his experiences and then what the symptoms were that I was seeing. Well, and you fell in love, mm-hmm. which some people say is a mental condition. <laughs> you know. And, you know, when, itself, when yeah. that started to uh, to change and... Uh, it's just a very sweet chapter when I read that, and uh, because the book starts off in a different place, doesn't it? And in, in, in the year 2000, you met Sean in, in the year 2000, yes. and this particular incident that the book starts off with is in 2007. Is that correct? Correct. Yep. Yeah. And, and I, uh, I did that intentionally because I really, again, to try to reduce that stigma, I wanted people to fall in love with my husband, so to speak, as well. And I've heard comments that, you know, he's just a likable guy from how that chapter you're talking about because I want people to know that this is just a normal, wonderful person that just had some struggles. And so that was an intentional 
Um, well, that's important contract. for us to separate from the disease, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Um, the people that we know, or if it's yourself, you know, that it, the disease is a, is a separate part from you, and that there's a good person in there. Can you t- can you take us to this? The chapter one is very. Um, it's right in your face, isn't it? It is. Yes. Yeah. Tell us about that. Um, the, the book opens with a, an incident in 2007 um, where many years of struggles and pain um, inside of my husband, and I didn't know what was going on, but I could see him in complete turmoil for years, um, and it all came to a head, I guess, uh, on that night in June, June of 2007. And it started out as a normal day, uh, later, we would have what I would call normal at the time, which was a little disagreement about his drinking because I was concerned about his drinking at the time. Uh, but it was no run, no out of the ordinary um, argument. It was fairly typical of us. It wasn't a big one. We had a little disagreement, and he drove off and went to a bar, which was, for him was actually quite unusual. He was more of a, I'll drink so I can just feel normal and good, um, but not over-the-top drinker. But that particular night, he chose to go to a bar, uh, and he came home about four hours later, and he was completely different than I had ever seen him before. I had seen little pieces of what I saw that night, but never to the intensity of that night. Um, when he came home, he kept saying, if you want to call the police, go ahead. If you want to call the police, go ahead. And that was very confusing to me because I had never had any reason to call the police before. Um, I'd never threatened to call the police. It was just, They were just never part of our conversations before. And so when he kept saying that, I was confused by that. And eventually at one point, we weren't even arguing. We were, I was folding laundry. He was a little bit riled up from his time at the bar. But eventually at one point he finally said, well, if you're not going to call the police, I'll call them. And that began the night. Um, the, the, the call was placed and the officers headed to our home. Our home is a little bit out in the country, so it took them a little bit of time to find their way or get there, and in that short period of time, something happened, something snapped, um, and he decided uh, he just wanted to end it all and perhaps wasn't able to do that himself, and so um, his intention initially was to have those officers take him out, so to speak. Um, so he, his intention was to provoke them to shoot him. And so when the officers learned that he had armed himself with a weapon, um, they did not ever approach the house, so they just kind of circled in the woods and kind of kept a perimeter, which then in turn made it feel like combat. And so kind of things changed from suicide to now I'm being feeling threatened, not being threatened, right. I was feeling threatened. And, and there you were, were in there the were home with your, your three kids, right? Michael, Caitlin, Caitlin or Katie Lynn and Amanda, yes, is that right? Yes. Amanda was not there at the time. She was she's a child of his from a previous marriage, and so she wasn't there at the time. But my two okay. children were there. So there was um, at the time they were four and one and a half, and they were sleeping miraculously through this. It was about a four-hour standoff um, that occurred. Oh, wow. And um, at one point he did uh, wake up my son by a truck fell off. He kind of slammed through a room and a truck fell off and woke up my son. So there was one very frightening moment when. Um, my son ran to his arms and he picked him, my husband picked him up and he had a gun in one hand and, and my child in the other, our child. And so that was a, a memorable moment, shall we say. Um, but he was fine, my son, my children are fine. Um, but it certainly was an intense, incredibly intense night and a night where it was very hard for me to decide what to do because my children were kind of peacefully sleeping and should I take them out and get them out of there or should I keep them there safe in the house? It was, it was quite a decision for a mom to make. And what did you do at that point 
Um, and I know this is probably somewhere between terror and indecision, but what were the thoughts running through your head on what to do? Uh, you've got to protect your kids, right? Mm-hmm. And then you're worried about your husband. Absolutely. And you're probably worried about yourself in that order. Yes, and for um, different reasons. I, I was worried about myself because of the I couldn't see the police officers, and I was afraid of some kind of crossfire thing happening because I didn't know where my husband was outside, and I didn't know where they were exactly. And so that was my fear of me walking around the house, and I was fearful for the children also just laying in their beds if, if a bullet whizzed through the, the wall or something right. like that. So, yes, all those things are going through my mind. I definitely wanted to get the children out and myself out, but at the same time, yeah, this is my husband. I love him, and I know he's just sick and needs help, and it was very, very, very hard to leave him behind. And there was a crucial point where I had to just make that decision that I've done all I can for him, and I need to get the children out. Now, you're aware, or are you aware that he's he has... Uh difficulties with alcohol at this point, right? But is this the first time that you saw that there may be something uh, deeper in the mental illness part of it? Definitely, yes. I I guess I I believe that he was depressed, but I didn't even, I don't even think I had a sense of what clinical depression looks like. You know, he just seemed troubled. Uh, I definitely knew he had some struggles with alcohol, but again, it wasn't like he was stumbling drunk. He was a very functional alcoholic for most, for the most part. Um, but we were struggling. I knew or I had begun to read a little bit about alcoholism to know enough that it was going to progress and it was going to get worse and it wouldn't stay just a, you know, a half dozen beers at night or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so that was our tussle that night earlier was just simply um, he wanted to sign up for a volleyball league that meets at bars, and so I just didn't think that was a good idea given his struggles. And so that's how it all started that particular night. Um, but certainly the other pieces, the post-traumatic stress, I didn't understand. And to be honest, I still didn't understand it till a year later when an almost similar incident happened again. And yeah. that's when it finally clicked for me what the deeper issue was, that alcoholism was just really masking the deeper yeah. mental health issues. Can you tell our listeners what you felt like the next morning and what you did? <laughs> um, well, the incident went on till about 3.30 or so in the morning, uh, I had moved my children then to a neighbor's house, and so I, I got a few hours of sleep, and then I had to wake up and deal with it. At first, it seemed like it was just a bad dream. I mean, I was so exhausted, of course, emotionally drained. Um, I decided to take my children to daycare, um, just their normal routine as much as possible, first because I had nothing left to give them at that point, and secondly, I just wanted things to be as normal as possible for them. Uh, and then I spent that day trying to sort out where I was going to go with my life, what was going to happen with my children, how, if if at all, I should support or help my husband, what was going to happen with him. At that time, he was facing up to 25 years in prison for all the different charges against him. Um, Yeah, there was a lot of what am I going to do with my life and how am I going to sort this all out and not really asking for a lot of help yet at that point because just still that shame of, oh, my gosh, this is going to be in the newspapers, this is a small town, uh-huh. what are people going to say, yeah. just a lot of uh, definitely shame and embarrassment as well as all the other things going on. And plus the piece that I can do this, I can make a difference, right, that I right. can help him. Yes, absolutely. This is something that I can do. Yes, and that, that I can uh, save him somehow. And we find out later that all that changes. I want to... 
Tell everybody we'll be right back after this break. We're talking to Charlene Princeton about her book, the very powerful, powerful book about post-traumatic stress disorder. It's called Blind Devotion. We'll be right back. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Leadership is a destination, but how do you get there? More importantly, how do you maximize your power and influence and develop more leaders in your organization? Learn from proven leaders and proven practices. Join Drs. Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler for Leadership Development News. This program will help you develop the next leaders in your organization, balance your work life, manage your boss, and manage yourself. We'll feature cutting-edge interviews with industry experts and authors. Leadership Development News, every Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, on The Voice America. America Business Channel. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back. We're, uh, of course, this is John McAndrew. I'm uh, the guest host today, one hour at a time. And we've been talking to Charlene Princeton, and she has written a very powerful book called Blind Devotion. We've been talking about her husband, Sean, and how they met and fell in love. And, and then we jumped to seven years later to the first incident uh, where it became evident that there were some severe problems. And uh, I think we'll pick up here, Charlene, in the book you talk about a second incident. And uh, can you describe that for our listeners? I can. Uh, so after that incident I was just describing, um, Sean was offered some help through the, the Department of Veterans Affairs, um, and they gave him a weekly counselor, and, and then he did start going to AA, and he entered himself into a... a treatment program, an outpatient treatment program. And so things were going very, very well for us along the way. Uh, and then we hit some snags, and that would be uh, he had some back troubles. He had to have a back surgery, which brought pain pills into the picture as well. Um, and, he, well, they had been out, and now they were back in. And then um, we also he also had to face the charges for that previous incident. And so all those things were kind of causing some stress for him along the way, um, and they just came to a head again. He did serve uh, 45 days in jail and was giving a, given a suspended sentence of three and a half years that kind of hung over his head while he was on probation. Um, and once he got out of that jail, um, whatever happened there, uh, there's all kinds of um, discrepancies on whether he got his medications properly or, or whatever happened. He didn't have his normal AA groups. All kinds of resources or things were taken out, and then there's more stress. 
Uh, about a month after he got out of jail, things just crashed very quickly. And there were other incidents happening as well. There was a tornado that he would drive through that area, and it looked kind of like a bomb-ravaged area. And so there were all kinds of triggers happening that, again, we still weren't quite aware of. So a year later, in fact, a year to the day, which we still don't know if there's a connection to that or not, but June 1st of 2008, uh, an extremely similar situation happened. This time he had not been drinking. There were no weapons in the house, thank God. Um, but he did call the police yet again and hung up. And their policy then is to call back and, um, you know, offer their services. They need to come if a call was made there. And so when they came that time... Um, of course, they had in their heads what had happened the previous year, and so they came kind of ready for whatever they might be facing. And so, um, you know, they came with their weapons, they came in their riot gear, and um, again, that probably triggered my husband seeing those weapons. And so uh, he came out of the house and stormed up to them, and again, just suicidal, just shoot me, just shoot me. Um, and my son and I were there because we had gone out the door earlier thinking that we were just going to talk to the police and get my husband some mental health help. He had been depressed. Um, and, of course, the incident completely exploded in our face again. And so after that incident, um, he was able to then eventually get himself to an inpatient treatment through the uh, Department of Veterans Affairs, and that was a lifesaver for us. It was the beginning of our hope, I guess I call it, at that point. Mm-hmm. And it was, I should mention, a dual diagnosis program, uh, which means they treated the uh, substance abuse and the mental health issues simultaneously as a comprehensive plan, which is really what someone in his case needed. Well, and evidence-based practices show that that's really the most effective way to treat mm-hmm. dual diagnosis, and we may talk about that a little bit later. And I, we have sort of a, this is a very special thing that's going to happen. Uh, Sean is there with you, and I think... On behalf of a lot of our listeners, um, I'd like to talk to Sean just for a minute and thank him for allowing you to share this story with all of us um, and to educate us, uh, to inspire us to, to possibly not only learning but to action. And uh, Sean is there, right? Yes. He just joined us. Hello. Hello, Sean. How are you doing today? Real good. My name is John McAndrew. I know you haven't been able to hear. I'm the guest host today on One Hour at a Time and uh, for Mary Woods, and we've been talking to Charlene about the book, obviously. And uh, I wanted to take an opportunity to thank you on the behalf of uh, all the listeners and all the servicemen and people through the years and through the wars that have suffered from some of the difficulties that you've gone through, and I think I just want to take this opportunity to thank you and, uh, and of course, welcome you to the show. Ah, well, thank you very much. Thank you, Sean. We just got done talking about the second incident, and um, can you share with us how you felt after the second incident and then how your recovery uh, changed after that? Let's see. Uh, after the second incident, ending up in jail again. Yeah. Uh, I. I really I don't know how to put it into words as to how I felt, but. Yeah. I mean, really. I felt, you know, out of place in in the world, and just. Right. Wasn't sure 
exactly how it was supposed to move forward. Right. And I guess what really helped was the the judge, I don't know, just the way he spoke to me and then getting put back in my cell uh, with a group of others and reading everything in that cell that I could except for a Bible. And mm-hmm. I was about 24 hours later where I was, you know, there's not a lot to do in there. Uh, right. <laughs> I picked it up and started reading it, and I got me started feeling very much better about myself and about where I was going, what I'd gone through, and figured out why yet. Still haven't figured out why yet, but um, it gave me uh, definitely a very positive attitude. Right. Would Would you think, um, I know that people that are in recovery, particularly 12-step recovery, do you think you had some sort of a conversion or experience, uh, spiritual experience in that cell that night? Um, I definitely think so. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, I mean... Definitely, and then it gave me a chance to look back on the you know, the previous incident in 2007 and even the one there in 2008. And clear-headed, you know, there's there was basically nothing in my system, you know, uh, you know alcohol or narcotic-wise. Right. And really think about and look at where what had happened and how it had happened and wondering how I got out of it alive, really. Yeah. So you had some gratitude, I'm sure, right, Sean? Oh, definitely, yep. Yeah. Did you know, Sean, what dual diagnosis was, what PTSD was, what any of this stuff was, and that you may have? Um, are, are you aware of that as you're going through it? Uh, I wasn't aware of anything, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as I know, 2007 was just a big black, dark dream. And then uh, in 2008, it was a bit different. Uh, I'd been going to the uh, AA meetings and stuff, and every time I go to an AA meeting, I walk out of there feeling, oh, so much better about myself and the world. Uh-huh. And that night leading into that day, I'd come out of my meeting and I felt worse than I when I went in. Wow. And so you slipped back into that dark place again, right? Right. And I last time, well, the time prior, you know, with the alcohol and everything, you know, I was pretty much unconscious as to what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And knowing what I know now, I would clearly say that it was some sort of disassociation of whatever. Right. Well, you've gained, now you have some tools, um, you know, and, and it lays some of that stuff out in the book, but just from your point of view, you have some tools and understanding now of this disease, and, and I've heard many people talk about 
diabetes, alcoholism, mental illness, whatever it is, it, it's the disease, which is not you, right? Correct. Yep. And I have a feeling that the, that presence you felt in the jail cell that night might have been that voice to confirm that, you know, that you're okay, who you are. Yeah, exactly. It, um, yeah. it wasn't me. It was so, you know, basically my behaviors, mm-hmm. reactions to what had, you know, what I'd done to myself, where I'd been. Right. Do you find comfort now, Sean, knowing that um, you're going to be able to help a lot of people? Actually, it's it's a strange feeling, but yeah, I, I guess the whole overall, you know, I don't understand how I'm going to help people, but yeah, obviously there's something going on. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, on behalf of all of our listeners, I want to thank you very much. I want to thank you for getting on the phone. Oh, this sure. is not a planned thing, but I, I'm from Wisconsin also. We don't, we just do things off the cuff anyway. Yeah, I, I, I do. That uh, but thank you very much for talking with us today, and thank you for the inspiration you've provided. It's been a tough journey for you, but. Uh, you know, let it be known. I'm sure there's a lot of people out there listening that are pulling for you and uh, praying for you. So thank you very much, Sean. Uh, thank you for uh, the opportunity to share. Thank you. We'll right. be right back. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. In your family, what is most important to you? Is it health? Relationships? How about getting along better with your kids or your parents? Maybe it has to do with losing pounds or gaining financially. Whatever the problems you face in your family, you'll want to tune in to Family First with your host, author, and speaker, Randy Rolfe. Since 1985, Randy has become the foremost expert on matters concerning the family, and she can help you. Family First airs live every Friday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back. This is John McAndrew. I'm the guest host today, and we've been talking with Charlene Princeton about her book, Blind Devotion. It's survival on the front lines of post-traumatic stress disorder and addiction, and we we just had a pretty special moment where we spoke to her husband, Sean, uh, 
uh, briefly. And it was a very powerful moment. And we, again, we thank Sean for for sharing with us. And I want to remind our listeners that Blind Devotion is available today through Hazelden Publishing, and it's very easy to find. You just Google Hazelden, and you can get right to where you can order this book. And it will be in bookstores as well. Hazelden distributes widely across this world. I wish you great success, Charlene, and your ambition to educate and to help people. Uh, this is a very important subject, um, dual diagnosis and post-traumatic stress disorder. And I don't think I've ever read anything so powerful and uh, concise and complete about it. And uh, I want to thank you as well. But let's pick up after that second incident where Sean is facing lots of jail time. He just shared with us uh, the experience, cathartic experience he had in jail that night. Did you see him that morning or did you see him soon after he had that experience he shared with us? Um, yeah, I mean, they took him, they whisked him, I mean, I should say I got myself back in the building and they took him away that, that day. And then I saw him the next day and that was, there's not many words you can say to describe how it is to see your husband uh, in jumpsuit, you know, orange jumpsuit and he was shackled at his seat and handcuffed and shuffling along there and he just had this incredibly broken uh, look in his eye. Um, at the time, I was very torn and and that is the struggle that a spouse sometimes has, is how far do you go with this? How far do you support someone? How far do you help someone without yourself going under as well? And I was at that point there. Um, I was actually ready to, to divorce, to walk away. I don't know if I should say divorce, but at least separate and walk away. It was just so much for our family to take. Um, but at that particular court hearing, after it was done, there was a woman that caught me in the uh, aisle of the courthouse, and she... I would say changed our life forever because she grabbed a hold of me and she said, Charlene, he's got PTSD. He's going to kill himself or someone else if you don't get him some help. He's got PTSD. And I think for the first time I had, he had had many diagnoses. He'd been getting treated for it, but I just still did not understand it until that very moment, how powerful that illness can be in a person's life and how, how much it can just really affect their behavior and change everything of how they act. And so... That was the beginning of our journey, but it took us a while to get him out of the jail because, of course, he had a history. He was on a probation hold. They were trying to revoke his probation, which would have meant he would have gone to prison for three and a half years. So it was kind of interesting. I think that's probably one of the most biggest turning points for us. You heard my husband describe how, for him, he found peace in that jail, and I can attest to that. I would call him, and he was just calm and peaceful, and he had no idea what his future held or if he was headed to prison Um me, on the other hand, and the children were devastated. We didn't know what to do, where to go, how to move on. We didn't know if we would ever see him for three and a half years or if he would get out tomorrow. I had no answer to give my young children. They cried uh, as if they were grieving him because, in a sense, we were. He was just gone. My daughter had gone to sleep for a nap, and he was just gone. And so um, as he found his peace with God slowly, um, I, on the other hand, became a mess, and I, my mission became to save him. I saw that codependency. Now I can look back and see that. Um, it, I felt it was my, I was the only one that could save him, and so I worked myself to the bone, late hours up till 2, 3 in the night, trying to get reference letters, trying to help him get out of that jail. And then he eventually did get to a treatment center, um, and there was just a sense of immediate relief, uh, and then another medical uh, emergency happens, and he had uh, heart troubles and had heart surgery, and so it just seemed like 
um, a cursed uh-huh. life. And so I saw this bitterness and resentment building in me, and I saw me taking that out really on my family and my children. And, you know, we just, everyone was in so much pain that we just kind of unleashed it wherever it could, uh-huh. and so often it was at each other. How old are Michael and Caitlin, is that right? Yes. Um, at How that time, they, they would have been five and two, two and a half at oh, that boy. point. So still very, very young, just very, you know, needing their parents. And so they have an absent father who just suddenly disappeared, and then they have this anxiety-ridden, crazy mom who's trying to save her husband and trying to hold down a full-time job and trying to take care of two young kids and isn't sleeping and isn't eating right, and um, it was not a good situation. And I talk about it in the book, and it's something um, that families should watch out for, is that many times when you live with someone with post-traumatic stress, people can uh, acquire what's called secondary traumatic stress. And so I started to see that in myself, some of the same symptoms that he was having. I would have flashbacks of those scenes with the police officers. I would have, um, you know, the physical symptoms of um rapid breathing and heartbeat and uh, rage and all these different things, the same things that he had been doing, um, I was now exhibiting those same things. So, And then the children as well, you would see them having nightmares, or I would see my son having to, like, build up his blankets around him because he didn't feel safe. He had, um, you know, just all kinds of strange signs like that that they also were feeling the, the mm-hmm. brunt of that trauma. So you started to recognize... Uh... And all the while you're going through this, you're learning as well. I mean, you just found out PTSD, right? Someone, some angel came and explained that was and what that was, and they've explained dual diagnosis to you. And now the next big um, roadblock is how to take care of yourself, isn't it? I, I guess we can call that self-care. I think in the, in the last section of the show we'll talk about, well, I'll have some questions for you about that. Yeah. But personally, what is what is the moment where you realized, oh my God, if I don't help myself, this will all be for naught? Mm. I would say it didn't happen, unfortunately, for about two more years, where I finally uh-huh. hit my low point. Um, my husband finally was getting himself sober, um, and he was moving forward, and I, I just finally broke um, after years of all that, trying to carry that burden myself, not asking for help, not taking care of myself, and, and we certainly can talk more about that. Um, I reached a point where I, I truly thought I was going to perhaps hurt myself or hurt one of the children just out of just snapping because I was such a frazzled mess by that point. I had not taken care of myself. I did not recognize that these are family illnesses, uh, depression and addiction. They affect everyone in the family, and so everybody needs to be in a recovery program. And I did not understand that. Or if I did go to Al-Anon or things like that, it was to try to save my husband. It was not to care for me, which is the point of Al-Anon. And so um, I did bring myself into a counselor, and I said, lock me in a hospital, do something, because I am afraid what, what I might do. The challenge is there's not a whole lot for people that aren't addicts, um, but just codependents, um, there aren't a lot of inpatient programs for them, and so that was the struggle that I had finding help for myself. Mm-hmm. This, uh, and I and I can see now as these things start to thread and weave through your story, um, your passion to educate people about this and the the medical and mental health and treatment world really need to, we need to keep talking about these issues because there's a lack of awareness and stigma and, and a lots of things that that stand in the way of recovery and 
when you did hit your bottom, um, who was the one that reached down to pick you up? Um, my counselor at the time was hard on me, and sometimes I would not go back to her for a couple of months because I knew she was right and I wasn't uh-huh. quite ready to get help, much like an alcoholic. Um, but she got me into the family program at Hazelden, which did wonders for me. Sean was not a patient there, but you can still go um, to their family program. And so that was an incredible starting point for me to start to focus just on me. I left the children with Sean for the first time in our whole um marriage because he was never stable enough to do it until that point. And I just went and I focused on me for the first time for those four solid days. And then I also attended a retreat a few weeks later um, about uh, forgiveness and getting rid of resentment and bitterness, which had just built up incredibly in me. And so um, that was an incredibly uh, helpful experience to me. And so there were resources right there in my backyard. I just wasn't aware of them. Um, Many times some of the counselors in the area couldn't even tell me where an AA or an Al-Anon meeting were was, uh-huh. and so it was it, it was surprising to me how little uh, communication there is between the mental health world and the um, addiction treatment world, and that that's one area that I hope to improve. There, it's just that bringing those uh-huh. two together because to treat one in isolation of the other is no good. So Hazelden became a very powerful resource. Um, that's obvious. And when you were there that weekend, were you with other people that were going through the same thing? And what does that feel like? Um, our listeners have heard this scenario before, but it's always worth repeating. When we get out of our heads and get out of being alone and, and hold someone else's hand that's going through the same thing, the, the weight and the enormity of the problem seems to shrink and get lighter and more, uh, you know, able to deal with it. And did that happen right there at Hazleton? I would definitely say so. I mean, I have been involved in Al-Anon for a while, too. Um, But definitely there, because my husband was actually sober at that point in 2010, Mm -hmm. uh, he had been sober for a a while. And so um, it kind of was good for me to see my progress, to hear people way back still trying to, you know, struggle, you know, to get their loved one to not drink. And so to see that I actually had made progress was very powerful. And then, yes, to be able to share that there is hope that, that you know, after seven or eight years and suicide attempts and jails and all these things that we had been through, my husband is now sober. And for people, you could just see the hope light up on people's face that it, it can. Even the worst scenarios can turn um, to good when people choose recovery and choose to walk in that uh, light. And did they also offer some help and suggestions for Michael and, and Caitlin uh, um, as they, so Michael's probably about six or seven years old at this point, or I've mm-hmm. lost track. But. Yeah, somewhere in there, about seven. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Caitlin was about five. Uh, they do have a family program there, but theirs doesn't go as young. There are other programs, though, throughout the nation that do go younger, like the Betty Ford um, is one program mm-hmm. that would go for younger children. Um, right. so, but they did certainly, you know, just from sharing among the people how, uh, you know, how they deal with it in their own family. That's the power of those groups. That's the power of recovery programs is just hearing other people's stories uh, and learning and taking from it what you can. And so definitely they had hints for us. Um, my counselor was definitely huge in helping me to find some resources and just techniques of giving, you know, for example, at night, just giving them a a checkpoint where each night we would just crawl into bed with each kid and then and switch. But that was a time where the kid could talk about anything they wanted, whether it was what they ate for lunch that day or, you know, why did Daddy grab that gun that one night? And sometimes those discussions would go for an hour. But those were the kinds of tips that we learned that we would have never thought to do. So 
so we picked those up along the way from, from Hazelden, from books that I read, from people at Al-Anon, um, from counselors. It, it, it's The best thing to do is just educate and fill yourself with as much information as you can. And that's why I wanted to share this. This was my experience, but you'll see resource pages and things in here. Everything that I wish someone had told me back then, I try to impart that either through the story or through very specific um, resource pages. Thank you so much. And, you know, now you... You have become the healers. It's pretty f- profound. Uh, I, I bet you wouldn't have thought that a couple of years ago or mm-hmm. Sean a few years ago. No, um, I would it's never very, have imagined very this year. The book is Blind Devotion, and we're going to be back after this next break, and we're going to ask Charlene some questions and give you some information. Uh, and uh, we'll talk to you in a minute. <laughs> Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to our last segment, One Hour at a Time. I'm John McAndrew. I'm the guest host today. And uh, we have been talking to Charlene Princeton about her book, Blind Devotion, which is really her story, uh, along with her husband, Sean, who shared with us a little while ago in the program. And it's about survival on the front lines of post-traumatic stress disorder and addiction. And I think it's probably the most powerful book I've, I've uh, ever read on this subject and these subjects and uh, highly recommend that people pick this up and read it. It's full of, uh, the story is absolutely incredible and there are resources in here and uh, Charlene and her husband are dedicated to educating and uh, all of us about what dual diagnosis and PTSD, what they really are and uh, it would be probably a challenge for any of our listeners to to not find someone in their either immediate or extended family that have issues with this. And uh, hopefully we will now recognize that more. And Charlene, in your book, um, one of the things I like are uh, the questions that you have in here and the resources and the answers. And near the end of the book, there's a question in here and, uh, you go into detail what it's about, and I think it's probably the million-dollar question in this field uh, these days. What does it mean to have a dual diagnosis or co-occurring disorders? 
Well, that was one of the questions I had to have answered for myself after the, mm-hmm. the second incident um, with the police for my husband. When I went to the veteran service officer, he offered uh, my husband to get him into a treatment program, and he called it the dual diagnosis program, and I didn't know what that was. So um, he explained to me since that that is uh, a dual diagnosis means that there is uh, some kind of substance abuse uh, paired with some kind of mental health disorder that they exist together. A more common term today, I think, is becoming co-occurring disorders because there may be multiple um, issues. For example, my husband suffers from depression and post-traumatic stress and uh, substance abuse. And so um, it is when there are the multiple factors um, affecting the person's behavior and they need to be treated uh, comprehensively and, and simultaneously. If you just pick one piece or the other and treat it, you will not have um, a successful recovery in most cases. Which we saw, for example, after the, after the first incident with the police, he got into a, a substance abuse treatment program and he was able to quit drinking alcohol, um, but he was, all the other symptoms continued on because the post-traumatic stress was not being addressed and the depression was not being addressed properly yet with the correct medicines and therapy. So uh, we saw no improvement because we were only uh, addressing one part of the complicated factors there. Mm-hmm. At, at Westbridge, who sponsors this program, they've been speaking for many years about dual diagnosis and the totally integrated approach and its evidence-based practices have, have found that what you're saying to be true, that they have to be dealt with um, at the same time with equal force and, and uh, commitment. Your story really outlines his alcohol and drug abuse separate from the mental health and how you tried to tackle one at a time, and it just doesn't work, does it? No, it, it did not. We did not see any success. And, um, yeah, it was not until we got into that program where they treated both. I, I kind of give the analogy in the book of trying to treat uh, a brain tumor by just hitting the symptoms, you know, of just giving, you know, aspirin or something for the headache and not treating what's causing that headache. And that's what was happening when we were treating the substance abuse. That was a symptom of of the larger issues underneath that. And so we were treating the the symptom of substance abuse, which was him trying to medicate himself, when really what was troubling him was the post-traumatic stress issues and the depression. And once we got to the root of that uh, and then also addressed the substance abuse along with it, that's when we saw great success and he's been sober for over two years now. So for our listeners, um, how do you recommend them? Who do they go to first? Who do they call? Um, and, you know, what are your recommendations on that to get the proper diagnosis and then the proper care? That is a struggle, and you'll see um, resource sections about that. The first time I tried to get him into just a substance abuse treatment, I was on the phone for six hours. I had no idea where to go. Um, for us, we have a bit fortunate in that we had the, the VA system the, um, for vets. And so they do have, they're kind of set up and ready for that kind of treatment. Um, as far as in the private or civilian world, if I, if I were to start, I, I would start at a local hospital and I would start asking just a lot of questions. I would start asking what their treatment plans are, what kind of treatment um, facilities they offer, if they have inpatient, if they have outpatient. And I kind of outline that in the book, too, the difference between those different levels of care. Um, I would definitely ask about uh, whether they have a comprehensive approach, meaning uh, if if they have a team of people that are communicating and how they do that. So the person prescribing the medications, for example, for the depression, does he or she communicate with the person dealing with the substance abuse treatment? Does that person communicate with the person that's helping with, for example, maybe cognitive behavior um, 
training for the PTSD. Is there a good communication between all of those, and are they working together to create a treatment plan? Because to do it in piecemeal uh, was not effective. And so you may contact a local institution and find that they don't have that. If I were you and you have another option in the area, I would continue to work toward that. Right, if you I don't have that, if you don't have that, the best second scenario is to uh, pick one of your um, caregivers and ask them to be the coordinator that all the others kind of report and share information with, so that you do have one person kind of coordinating all areas. Right, and also, um, you know, a good resource would be Westbridge or Hazelden. Mm-hmm. Westbridge is easy to contact. It's just westbridge.org and and. Um, they have people there that are trained in this and uh, can offer and answer many, many questions. So I think it's important to know the question, though, isn't it? Yes, definitely, uh, to know what to ask. I didn't know what to ask. So Yeah. Another question for you is is about the kids, and I I have a real soft spot for all this just from my own experience, but... In your book, you talk about how you can help your children cope with the difficulties of living with a traumatized loved one, and I I appreciate very much how you have worded that because that's who they are as a traumatized loved one. And uh, what what are your answers to that? Uh, for me, I found that age appropriate honesty is the absolute necessity um, to help them through that. Um, I tried to explain things as best as I could at their age level. I, I always encouraged them to ask me questions. I never shied away or, or made it to hush, hush, let's not talk about that in our family mm-hmm. uh, or don't talk about this outside. I think that's very important that children not feel ashamed of what's going on in their family and that they understand that it's no different than cancer or diabetes. It's just someone that's ill getting help. Um, we, I, got, I ordered children's books. I list a few in my um, book. Um, that, that just kind of address it in more of a lighthearted or a children's story format, and we would read those together, and that would give us a chance to discuss things. I already talked a little bit about the, the checkpoints that we would have at night so that the children were always able to ask questions. Um, I definitely got them into counseling. Um, sometimes that was a struggle with all that was going on, but I, I definitely tried to make that a priority to get them a counselor for each of them, and then sometimes they would work together with us um, because of the family dynamic that goes on there. Um, for us, we shared our faith with them. For us, um, you know, our faith is uh, a foundation for us, and so that gives us hope and that gives us strength, and so that was definitely a piece that I was able to impart to them. Uh-huh. And also to make it clear to them and to reinforce that, I would suppose, on a regular basis, that this is not their fault. Exactly. Absolutely. When because, Daddy rejects you or when Daddy yells at you, or you know, yeah. because that's part of it sometimes with depression and post-traumatic stress, absolutely, that it was not anything that they did or said, and that he loves you and he's not feeling well today or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, we also, at times, we had to have safety plans, too. And, you know, depending on the circumstances, my children had to know who they could call and what they should do and, you know, what were some signs or when should they call mom if, if there's trouble. Um, so definitely being honest with them about that and being not naive about um, some of the dangers that can happen until a person is stabilized in their recovery. Mm-hmm. And this final question Charlene, is for you, um, you have been very brave through all this process, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of people, I'm sure, listening to this program that uh, have been touched by what you've been through and what you've done and what you are doing, and, and sort of the final big question in this book, and I think it's appropriate, is uh, self-care for caregivers, and you have here 
caregiver fatigue or or compassion fatigue uh, and can you kind of go through this is really a powerful section of the book um definitely um throughout the most of this journey because of my own choices and the stigma that I allowed to be put on myself and my family, um, I didn't always ask for help or I felt like the crisis had gone on so long. I felt like I had run out of help me cards or something with my friends. And so um, I really was in isolation. And so I tried to do it all by myself and you can't, Um, I didn't take care of myself physically. I didn't eat right. I didn't exercise. I didn't sleep well. I found myself actually being tempted um, because I had pain pills for my neck. I found myself being very tempted by those in that area. And I thank God that I never crossed the line into that um, addiction. But um, I just definitely learned that a person can only do so much. And the key to successful uh, long-term recovery, I believe, is a support system around the whole family, not just the ill person, but um, the caregivers as well. And so a support system, a faith-based system for me was very important. But just simple things like taking time out to take a, a walk, a bubble bath, to read something for yourself. When someone asks you how how are things going, I used to answer for Sean. I'd say, well, Sean's doing really well now. Instead of just, you know what, I'm an important person too. Remembering that you are a person outside of your role as the caregiver as well is very, very important. Um, taking your vitamins, you know, like I said, walking physically, getting yourself to doctor's appointments. Those things get neglected as you're trying to get the loved one to their things. Um, And especially if you have children, then you have even more caregiving responsibilities. So it is just so important to set aside time for yourself. um, I want to thank you on on the behalf of everyone that listened to this program. I I am so moved by this book. It is so well done. It is so well intentioned. Uh, It comes from such a a very dark place, and you've turned this into a very bright, uh, you've brought us to a very bright ending, and it's just beautiful. And thanks to you, and thanks to your husband, Sean. And remember, the book is Blind Devotion, and you can get that on uh, Hazelden's website. You just Google that, and it's available today. And, and we, at one hour at a time, want to thank you very much, Charlene. Well, I thank you so much for having me for this opportunity. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program. Brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. 